just another note uh, following up on what Jim was saying. We are back in Matthew this morning, uh, Matthew 9, 18 through 35, as Jim was talking about. Um, and we're going to take a pause on Matthew for a little bit uh, and start talking next week about a crucial biblical doctrine called church membership. Uh, yes, I would put church membership in the category of biblical doctrine, uh, and it's very, very important, especially in our age and in our country. And so we're going to start a series talking about it. Uh, so if you have misgivings about church membership or uh, you're unsure about it or you have questions, this is the time. Uh, this is the time to clarify those things. And so I'm looking forward to starting that next week. Uh, but today we jump back into Matthew. And I would remind you, just as we, uh, like I said, this is going to be a good place to stop. Why is that? Because really where we've been since the Sermon on the Mount is a series of miracles, uh, a series of miracles demonstrating Jesus' authority. Jesus demonstrated his authority uh, in the Sermon on the Mount through his teaching, uh, but then he's been demonstrating his authority as he's been doing these miracles. And not just his authority, what we've been saying is he's been demonstrating his identity, who he is, who he is who he is as the Messiah, who he is as the Son of God, who he is as the Son of Man, who he is as God incarnate. And the other thing we've been seeing is uh, interspersed through these different episodes of Jesus' healing and his miracles, of healing the centurion's slave, healing the uh, leprous man, uh, calming the storm. Uh, interspersed through these things are paragraphs, snippets, where Jesus teaches on discipleship. He talked about the two men that came up to him, right? Was about, he was about to get into the boat. Uh, to the one, he wasn't a disciple. He wanted to follow, and Jesus said, count the cost, because the Son of Man has no way where to lay his head. To another, he was already a disciple, and yet he wanted to take a leave of absence to deal with his father, and he said, keep following me. It's more important. And then we saw, even last week, he called the tax collector Matthew, and then Matthew had a big feast for his friends, his, sinner, his uh, friends who were sinners and other tax collectors, and he taught about him, Jesus, coming and being the great physician, the one who's to heal the sick. He came out to call the righteous, or those who think they're righteous, but the sick, those who are sinful and know that they are in need of help. And not only that, the way he ended last week uh, the disciples of John came up to him and asked, well, why are we fasting and the Pharisees are fasting? You don't. And Jesus essentially said, well, the thing you're fasting for, looking forward to God's kingdom and the restoration of it, it's begun. It's begun in me. I'm the king that's here. And there's been a shift, a shift from the things of the old time, the, the things of the old covenant, uh, Really, Israel was under a foreign domination because of failing to keep the old covenant, failing to, dis, to obey God, and, and in their sin, they were in exile, and, set, and that's why they were mourning, mourning and fasting, and Jesus is saying, but I'm here. I'm here to start reversing that. I'm here to start bringing the new creation, and so it's inappropriate to mourn. And now we enter a final sequence in this this section of miracles. And what is going to end that section is verse 35 in chapter 9. And that verse, verse 35, summarizes Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And if you were to turn back to Matthew 4, verse 17, you would see an almost verbatim language, which indicates these are bookends. These are bookends of a large section. And that section from 417 to really 935 has showed us Jesus' teaching on discipleship. What does it mean to have kingdom righteousness? And then displaying his authority in his miracles and his identity, right? Giving foretastes of that kingdom. And all the while, if you remember back to Matthew 4, he's been training the disciples. He's been training the disciples to be fishers of people. Jesus has been a fisher of people, essentially, in what he's been doing. Uh, he's giving them foretastes of the kingdom and his miracles, and yet he's also proclaiming the kingdom at the same time. And what we're going to see as we pause for a few weeks, but what we're going to, when we pick up again, what we're going to see in chapter, the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10 is Jesus says, training's over, now it's time for you guys to go. So it's appropriate that we close out 
take a break in this section where Jesus is still displaying his authority. So we want to see, once again, the wonders of who Jesus is. That's part of what we're supposed to take away, to see who Jesus is. But what we also want to note is people's responses to Jesus. Jesus, uh, People's responses to Jesus. And that's, as we walk through this text, watch. Watch who Jesus is, yes, and marvel at that. But also watch at people's responses, because that teaches Matthew's audience, and it teaches us about what sort of response we are and are not supposed to have. Well, the main idea for this morning in this text that Matthew has for us is this. Repent of sin and entrust yourself to Jesus as the rescuer from death, blindness, and demons to enter the kingdom of heaven. Repent of sin and entrust yourself to Jesus as the rescuer from death, blindness, and demons to enter the kingdom of heaven of heaven. Let's see, let's pick up on that in verses 18 through 26, where we see Jesus rescues from death. Jesus rescues from death. Look at verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, now that takes us back to the previous episode. Where was Jesus? He was in the house of Matthew. He's having this dinner with these sinners and tax collectors. And what was he just saying? He was just talking about, we don't put new wine into old wineskins. We don't put new things into old structures. There's been a shift, essentially was his point in his parables. But while he's still saying those things, a ruler, behold a ruler, that behold language, it draws our attention to a shift in the narrative. So he's saying these things, he's still at the dinner, behold, A ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. What kind of a ruler is this? It's most likely a synagogue ruler. In fact, if you were to correlate this with with Mark and Luke, you would see that it is indeed a synagogue ruler. But what you need to notice about this fellow is his faith. His daughter has just died. Now, we talked about Jewish burial customs a couple weeks ago, and normally when a person dies, especially a close family member, uh, people wouldn't go out. There would be mourning, and you're going to see that mourning taking place later on in the passage, but normally they wouldn't go out at all. But here the father goes out, and he finds Jesus. Uh, again, with a lot of the characters, we assume they've been hearing about Jesus' teaching, they've been seeing his miracles, they've been hearing about them, but he goes out and just notice his faith. It's just really stark and blunt, and there it is. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. This is faith. This is faith. This is, and remember what we've been saying about faith. Faith is not just belief in facts. It's oriented towards a person. And here it's oriented towards Christ. It's oriented towards who Jesus is and his identity and also what he's able to do. And the the, the man, the ruler, is saying, you can raise my daughter from the dead. That's essentially what he's saying. He believes his daughter has died, and he's asking for Jesus to come. You have the power. I've seen your power. I, I, I know enough about who you are to trust that you can raise my daughter from the dead. And like a lot of these appeals, notice how Jesus responds. He just gets up, verse 10, Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Jesus gets up and goes. He's going to do this. But what's interesting here is Matthew interrupts one story with another, right in the middle. And it's intentionally so. These stories are blended together. So Jesus is on the way to the ruler's house with his disciples and then we enter another story, verse 20. And behold, all right, new, new aspect coming in here, new, new peace. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for, over, for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, what's going on here? Uh, the woman has, a, the, the language is described as hemorrhaging. She's hemorrhaging blood. And actually the particular Greek word that's used for her hemorrhaging blood is used only one other time in the Bible as far as a Greek word. A Greek translation of the Old Testament is the only other time this word is used. In Leviticus 15, 
in refer, referring to menstrual bleeding. And actually, that, perform, that forms a significant backdrop to what is happening here. I, evidently, this woman has an ongoing issue of bleeding, and you can think of that medically, what it would do to her body, and it would weaken her, cause her to be anemic. So she's not doing well physically, but there's so much more going on than that. Turn back to Leviticus 15. Leviticus 15, we were talking about Leviticus this morning in the equipping hour, and we were talking about how chapters 11 through 15 talk about distinguishing, distinguishing between the clean and the unclean. Now, remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about this issue. We talked about this issue with the leper. You remember the leper and healing the leper. In Israel, you had the beating heart of life in the temple or in the tabernacle, depending on what time frame it was. That was the beating heart of life because God is the fountain of life. He is life in and of himself. And his presence in that fountain of life is manifested in Israel in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so what you would have, because God is utterly uncommon, utterly incomparable, uh, he would requisition space for himself in the temple, in the tabernacle, as holy. And everything outside of that space was common. So you have the common, and then you have the holy. But within the common, within the common, you had two other categories, the clean and the unclean. The clean and the unclean. So if you're clean, you're not necessarily holy, but being clean is the prerequisite to drawing near to the holy, to God's presence, to God's life-giving presence in the tabernacle or the temple. And so that's some of the backdrop of what's going on in Leviticus, and it informs what's also going on in Matthew. Look at Leviticus 15, 25, and this informs, this is exactly the case of the woman that is uh, coming to Jesus. Leviticus 15, 25 says this, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be, uh, uh, be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. That's the state of the woman. And what's going on here is not just a medical issue, but it's the reality that because she's in a constantly unclean state, she's in a constantly unclean state, she cannot draw near to God's life-giving presence in the holy place in Jerusalem. She cannot worship. It'd be like you can't, you're banished from church. You can't come to church because you're like continuously infectious or something like that. You can't draw near to God's life-giving presence in the place where he's manifesting, God's manifesting, his concentrated manifestation of his presence, his life-giving presence on earth. Really, you can think about it like this. And if you've got the, the center of life is the holy place in the temple, as you move away from that, you're on the spectrum of death. You're on the spectrum of death. The farther away from God that you are, you're on the spectrum of death death. This comes back to the fall, even in Genesis, that mankind was dwelling with God in his life-giving presence and basking in his glory. That's what we were designed to do. But then with the fall, with sin, you've moved away from God's presence. You've moved away from God's life-giving presence, so you've moved away from the treasure of the universe. And what did God say? If you touch the tree, you eat of the tree, you're going to die. And did they physically die right away? No, but they were in a state of death. They were on the spectrum of death, which physical death is a part of that. And so really, that's why Matthew ties together these two stories. Why does he tie together this, this woman? Now, it happened this way, obviously. This is the way it happened, but why are they tied together? Why is the, the bleeding woman tied together with this dead girl, and the reason is because they're both on the spectrum of death. One is on the spectrum of death in the sense that, yes, she's physically unwell, but also because she can't draw near to God's life-giving presence. The other has physically died. 
physically died. And so that's the issue. And we kind of even see that reality in her approach to Jesus, right? How does she approach Jesus? She comes up from behind and she just touches the hem of his garment, maybe just the tassel on the edge of his garment. Why does she do that? Well, probably to not be discovered, because if she's discovered, what has she just done? We just heard it in Leviticus 15. If you're in this state of impurity, you transfer your impurity to whatever you touch. So you transfer to the garment, to Jesus' garment, and that transfers to Jesus himself. So she's trying to really do this undercover, but notice her desperation and her response. If only I touch his garment, I will be made well, that language there of be made well, it's the language of save. Uh, it, the word save can either mean, uh, of, you know, we usually think of save as in a, a, a spiritual salvation, but here it's the idea of a deliverance, right? Of a, a physical restoration, of being delivered from f- some physical malady. I will be rescued, I will be delivered. But we've already seen, it's not just as simple as saying that she'd be rescued physically, that's true, but it has a spiritual dimension to it, doesn't it? If she's rescued from this physical malady, then she will also be able to draw near to God's life-giving presence in worship in the temple once again. She hadn't been able to do that for 12 years. And this is faith, once again, on display. It's desperation, yes, but it's a recognition that I have nothing, I, I, I... I, need, I know who Jesus is, or at least I know enough about him and his identity and his power that he can make me well. And so it's an act of, yes, desperation, but also of faith. And notice Jesus' response, verse 22. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. And why does he say that? Well, she's been found out, right? Uh, she could be Uh, getting a lot of trouble for what she just did because she essentially, or at least by all rights, it seems like she should be transferring her uncleanness to a Jewish teacher who is very righteous, who she's seen and heard his teaching. He's righteous and he's clean. He's of great status. He's even an agent of God. We don't know exactly what her conception of Jesus is, but Jesus allays her fear and he shows compassion just like he did with the leper just like he did with the man on the mat who's brought to him. It's a very similar language. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Faith in him. That's the object of his faith. It's not, we've been saying this again, faith is, is not just assenting to the facts. It's not the believometer. I need more Christmas spirit to get Santa Claus to come into town. It's not that kind of belief. It's entrusting of oneself and utter dependence to Jesus and his power to deliver. And that's what Jesus points to. Your faith in me, understood, has made you well. It's saved you. It's delivered you from this physical ailment. It's rescued you from the spectrum of death and brought you into a state where you can approach God's life-giving presence. And instantly the woman was made well. Her rescue and deliverance from her physical illness does result in a spiritual restoration. So we see that. We see Jesus rescue this woman from death, but then the story picks up, going back to our other story, also talking about death, and he picks up his journey to the ruler's house. Verse 23, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, so they finally make it there, and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. Remember what we said, someone dies in a household. Usually the burial and the funeral takes place that same day. And you would normally have flute players playing dirges, uh, like a funeral dirge, and mourners. Uh, that was normal. That's what's going on here with them making a commotion. Someone has died in the house, and it is appropriate, or at least they think so, to mourn over this. But notice what Jesus says here. He sees all of this, and that, that, he sees all of this, he takes it in, and then that brings about his response. Verse 24, he said, go away. Go away. Why? Why does he say that? Well, he supports his statement. He says this, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. The girl is not dead, but 
sleeping. Now, that brings up a question, doesn't it? I don't know if you've ever asked this question when reading through the Gospels at this point. Was the girl dead or not? Was the girl dead or not? The, the, the dad thinks this, uh, seems to think so. And in fact, in the other accounts, there's, there's some indication, even in Luke, that Dr. Luke says they knew that she was dead. So what is Jesus getting at here? I think the, the girl was actually dead. I think she was actually dead. So then why does Jesus say, go away, for she's not dead, but sleeping? Well, I think the perspective he has in mind is the perspective of Daniel 12, 1 and 2. Not that he's quoting that directly, but that he's thinking about what Daniel 12, 1 and 2 says. And I'll just read for you Daniel 12, 2 briefly. This is at the end of time, so far in the future when God brings his kingdom to earth fully and finally. It says this in Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, what that verse in Daniel highlights and what it informs for us, for Jesus, is that God's perspective on physical death is that's not actually ultimately death. It's like sleep. That's what Daniel is saying. That when you physically die, which is a consequence of sin in the world and, uh, and our sin that we commit, physical death is a consequence of that, but that's not actually ultimate death. Remember what we said, right? Uh, life, true life, is not just physically living, but it's being able to draw near to God's life-giving presence, to bask in his glory as close as you can get to it. And what happens is someone physically dies, and in God's perspective, that's like sleep. Uh, your physical body dies, your immaterial part of you, your inner man, to use biblical language, uh, is still, still has consciousness, but then for everyone, and Jesus makes this very clear in John 5, for everyone who physically dies, they will physically be resurrected. Everyone will be physically resurrected. It's just a matter of where are you going to go after that point, which is what Daniel 12, 1 and 2 talks about, which is what Jesus talks about in John 5. Everyone will be physically resurrected, so it's like sleep in that sense, but then real life or real death begins. Real life will be those who, chosen by God from the foundation of the world, who have been granted faith and entrusting themselves to Christ and his death on their behalf, his righteousness on their behalf, his resurrection on their behalf will enter God's presence and enjoy the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for all eternity. But for those who have rejected God, who reject Christ. And everyone naturally deserves this. This isn't, everyone naturally deserves this. They will experience God's presence, but God's presence only to punish for all eternity, which is what we call hell. That is ultimate death. And so what Jesus' perspective is in Matthew, he's saying the girl's just sleeping. And from God's perspective, that's true. Physical death is like sleeping, but she's still physically dead. And so what does Jesus say? He says, go away. Now, why would he say that? Go away. All you mourning people, go away. Isn't death sad? Well, yes, it is. But it's like the same thing with the new wine and the wineskins, right? What is fasting all about? It's mourning. It's a sense of mourning, looking forward to God's rescue, to God bringing about his new creation, his kingdom. And Jesus said, that's inappropriate right now because I'm here, because I'm the king that started this reversal. Well, mourning over death right now and in this context is inappropriate because I'm here and I'm going to give you a taste of the new creation. That's what Jesus is saying. Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. This isn't like laughing at a joke. This is like mocking laughter. This is mocking Jesus. Remember what we said, as he's doing these miracles, you need to notice the response of different people. So we've seen uh, a great deal of faith from the bleeding woman, uh, a great deal of faith from the father. But notice these folks, they're opposing Jesus. Now you might say, well, 
the, you know, this is against everything they've ever seen, but Jesus has been around for a while, and to hear about him and what they've been doing, they're opposing him, they're mocking him. Which is why, verse 25, but when the crowd had been put outside, they, go, they get put outside. So the father evidently, right, this would take some time, the father has to jump in and explain, okay, guys, get out, get out. So this shows the father's persistent faith, but it's also for the crowd, they don't get to see. They don't get to see what Jesus is doing. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, that's the little girl, and the girl arose. Now, if you know your Bible a little bit, you know that this isn't the first time someone's been raised from the dead. The Old Testament, the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha each raised a little child from the dead. Similar situation. But if you read those accounts at the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings, what you'll notice is they have to do a lot of gymnastics, uh, a lot of prayer and a lot of work but before God answers. And God's the one that ultimately raises the dead. But here, notice what happens. Jesus just has to go in and take her by the hand, and she's up. That's it. It's that easy for Jesus, because as Matthew has laid out, Jesus is the incarnate God, the God of life in flesh. And notice what happens. Verse 26, and the report of this went through all that district, right? The, The idea, as Matthew is walking through his narrative more and more, as Jesus does more and more of these healings, the fame of him is going out. It's, his reputation is preceding him even more. And what's the whole point of this episode? With both the bleeding woman and the little girl, Jesus rescues from death. Jesus rescues from death. He solves mankind's biggest problem. Death is mankind's biggest problem. Though physical death is not mankind's biggest problem, spiritual death is God's biggest problem. Man's biggest problem is after he's resurrected, and then he has to face the God of infinite life and be judged. And the only way one is accepted is through Christ. And if one doesn't know Christ and the one who rescues from death, then there is spiritual death for all eternity in God's presence, but in God's presence to punish for all eternity. Because remember what sin is. Sin is not just doing naughty things or making mistakes. It is a slap. It is a personal offense, a slap in the face to the holy, infinitely worthy God of the universe. Physical death is like sleeping, but there will be a resurrection either to life or to death. Death is away from God's presence. And so what's the call? The call to Matthew's audience, the call to us, The call to believer and unbeliever is this. Entrust yourself to Jesus as the one who alone can rescue from both. From both physical and spiritual death. And we see his compassion. We see his compassion. You may think of yourself, I I know I'm a sinner. And you should. We should all recognize that. Jesus only takes sinners. We already saw that. Before, we saw that last time we were in Matthew, that Jesus only takes sinners. You're not going to get into true life unless you first recognize your problem, your disease, your sin, and then you have to realize that only Jesus can solve that problem. Only Jesus can rescue me from the spectrum of death, from sin, from my own sin against a holy God, and can bring me to God. And the message, again, this is the idea of biblical faith. Biblical faith is not a one-and-done thing. It's not a decision, and then, okay, I made the decision, got my fire insurance, I'm good to go. Biblical faith is ongoing. Biblical faith continues to entrust yourself to Jesus because he is the one mediator between God and man. He's the only one, based on his death and resurrection, that can rescue you from physical death and then the death of God's judgment from in eternity. So Jesus rescues from death. Next we see this, Jesus rescues from blindness. Jesus rescues from blindness. Look at verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, you see how these are one right after another, right? This is happening 
bam, 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 right, right after another. We're docking one episode right with another. So Jesus leaves. He goes on from there. And where is he going? Well, what we see is he's probably headed back to Matthew's house. We kind of see that by the end of the section today. And Jesus passed on from there. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, why? Okay, asking for mercy, it's clear that they're asking for mercy for their sight. They're asking for healing. They want their sight restored. But why do they use the term son of David? Son of David refers to Jesus as Messiah, as Israel's ultimate king. Uh, Not only Israel, the one who will reign over all Israel, but all the world, the, the king of God's kingdom, that promise from the Davidic covenant that a son of David would reign over God's kingdom, his, his stewardship kingdom over the world. That's always been God's plan, that one of the sons of David would rule. But why did the blind men ask for mercy? Why did they ask for healing based on Jesus being the Messiah, the son of David? Well, Matthew has already prepared us for this. If you remember back in chapter 8, remember uh, there was an explanation of why Jesus was doing all of these miracles. Chapter 8, verse 17 says this, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And that links us back to the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah is all about talking about spiritual blindness. That's what Israel was in Isaiah's day. They were spiritually blind. But what ends up happening in the book of Isaiah is there's going to be a rescue. There's going to be a rescue from Israel's sin. There's going to be a rescue from exile. We talked about that earlier in Matthew. But then it gets described that the servant of the Lord, the Davidic servant, the Messianic servant, in the later chapters of Isaiah, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. So you can kind of think about it like this. Opening the eyes of the blind is a messianic signature move. It's a signature move by the Messiah to open the eyes of the blind. Now, these blind men have evidently heard enough about Jesus to put the pieces together, and their eyes have been opened spiritually enough to see, this is the Messiah, it's got to be. And it's enough to where they appeal to him on that basis that, would you heal our eyes? Would you open our eyes because we know you're the Messiah? We know that you're the Messiah. Now, notice what happens. Verse 29. So they're appealing to him, but look at verse 28. When he entered the house, again, that's probably Matthew's house. He probably went back right to where he was. But the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, this is kind of interesting. Notice Jesus doesn't respond to them right away. So he's walking along. Right? And these guys, have mercy on us, son of David. The two blind guys asking him, and he doesn't say anything. In fact, he doesn't address them at all until he's into the house. Now, to me, on the surface, that, it's kind of somewhat funny, uh, sort of. <laughs> but he's, he's making a couple of blind guys find their way into a house, isn't he? Before he talks to them. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just turn around right there and heal the blind man? Why does he wait until he's in the house? Well, we see part of the answer in what he asks them once they come in. You see their persistence. Their persistence to see Jesus. And Jesus says this, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. He's testing their faith. Right? True faith persists. It knows that it can only be saved and healed through Jesus. And so he waits. That's part of the reason, at least. He waits until they're in the house. And he asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? He said to him, yes, Lord. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Now, that phrase, according to their faith, be it done to you. Sometimes we think of those statements as, well, their believometer was high enough, and so Jesus did it. That's not the idea of the phrase. In the original, it's really clear. The idea is they've already displayed faith. They've already displayed faith in who Jesus is, identifying him as the Messiah, uh, persistently coming into the house. 
So the faith is already there and saying, your faith is already there. So in accordance with that reality that you have faith, be it done to you. And that's, a, that's not a, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that phrase. It's a command. It's going to happen. Because you've already demonstrated this faith in who I am and my ability, it's going to happen. And it does. And their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened, which again harkens back to the Isaiah idea that the son of David, the signature move of the the, the, the rescuer, the, the servant, the suffering servant in Isaiah, who is the Messiah, is to open the eyes of the blind. And he just did it. He just did it. But then notice what the son of David says. And Jesus sternly warned them. This is uh, bordering almost on a rebuke. It's, it's a really strong language. And Jesus sternly warned them, see to it that, you, that no one knows about it. Make sure no one knows. This is, an imp- this is a command. Make sure about it, that this doesn't happen. No one knows about this. Why? Why would Jesus say that? Well, again, it's what we just said. A signature messianic move is to open the eyes of the blind. A signature messianic move is to open the eyes of the blind. Now, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's not afraid to own that. But... The conception of the Jews at this time of what the Messiah is and was and was supposed to do is skewed. It's skewed. They think of him as the political ruler who's going to come in and he's going to rescue us from Rome. And they're right in the sense the Messiah is a political ruler. He is. Jesus will reign over the whole world. That's true. And he's going to crush all of his opponents. That's true. But what they're missing is the spiritual aspect, right? The reason that Isaiah talked about Israel being blind is because they have spiritual blindness. You're doing all the external things right, but the internal is wrong. And really the internal is the most significant. The reason there's such thing as blindness and sin and death and suffering in the world is ultimately because of sin. Not like okay, you sinned, therefore you get this disease. But in general, we know there's only sin and disease and death in the world because of sin. And Jesus came to deal with the fundamental problem. And people were missing that. And so he doesn't want press for the wrong reasons. He doesn't want press as the Messiah for the wrong reasons. And so that's why he does this. But notice this, it's kind of interesting that Matthew even mentions this. So he says, he sternly warns them, see to it that no one knows about it. Look at verse 31. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Now, on one hand, you can kind of understand this, right? These guys are blind. You can't see, right? And you can see. That's amazing. And it would be just hard-pressed to, 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 to keep it within yourself, right? This is amazing. Did you know who did this for me? Jesus. But Matthew is also getting us to think about discipleship again. What would the proper response have been? Isn't it kind of weird that Matthew highlights they went away? Now, wait a minute. These guys had faith, and they understand who Jesus is, but they leave. Why would you leave? Wouldn't you want to stay next to the Messiah, the the king who's right there? So that's one thing, but then also they disobey. They disobey what Jesus had told them to do. True discipleship, what does discipleship look like? It begins with faith, it continues with faith, it goes on with following, and following Jesus, being near Jesus, that's the greatest treasure for a disciple, and obedience, and obedience. And I think Matthew is highlighting these guys have, evidently they have a, a true faith of some sort, but they have a defective sort of view of discipleship. They're not willing to stay near Jesus, and they also directly disobey his command. And that helps us think about our own discipleship. See, Jesus has the power to heal from physical and spiritual blindness. And entrusting yourself to him means that you not only receive the benefits of his rescuing work, but also that you're signing up. 
You're swearing allegiance to follow him. You're signing up to follow him with your whole life to obey him in whatever he tells you to do. That's what true faith does and is. It's not true faith to just say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's going to rescue me and then not obey him and not follow him and not desire to be near him. That's not true faith. That's not true discipleship. And we understand, we are fickle and feeble creatures and God is gracious. We do get off track. But what's the, what's the right decision? What's the right move? Once you get off track, once you're focused more on the benefits than on following Jesus, once you're focused on life here and more concerned about where I'm taking my life rather than in following Jesus, we do get off track. Even as believers, what do you do? You come back and you entrust yourself to Jesus. You ask forgiveness, and then you start following and obeying. Remember what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of the Father, right? That's what happens when you follow Christ. The, he's bringing in the new covenant. What's that new covenant reality? That the Spirit is going to indwell you in your life, and it's going to change. The, the new covenant promise is that the Spirit is going to cause you to obey and follow what God wants you to do, which is following Jesus and obeying Jesus. So Jesus rescues from death. Jesus rescues from blindness. And finally, Jesus rescues from demons. Look at verse 32. As they were going away, behold, so again, we dock from one episode right into another. This is a busy day. Uh, as they were going away, the blind men are going away. Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. Now, this is a really abbreviated healing, right? They don't even... Record, uh, Matthew doesn't even record an appeal, but it's kind of understood whoever's bringing him, this, this demon-possessed mute guy, they're bringing him in, and obviously the request is, would you deal with this? And it's kind of matter of fact. Jesus deals with it. We've already seen him do this, so this is kind of no big deal. Um, he raised the dead. He he's, uh, healed the blind men. He's already cast out demons before, so in a sense, this is no big deal, right? It's, yet it's still amazing to the crowd. And that's what Matthew draws our attention to, is not so much the next miracle, although that's amazing in and of itself. Again, that Jesus has complete authority over the spiritual forces of evil in this world. And we struggle with this in a scientific age. We struggle to think that there are, in reality, spiritual forces of evil at work in this world. And it's true. It's just as true today as it was in Jesus' day. It just manifests differently manifest differently. But Jesus, then and now, has complete authority and power over those evil forces that even in this case had a physical effect of not being able to speak. But what Matthew wants us to focus on, again, is the response. The response. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled Remember the crowds? The crowds are the ones that are kind of in between. They're not the opponents of Jesus, but they're not his disciples. They're kind of in between. They're kind of, they move around. And their allegiance isn't to Jesus yet, but they're observers. They're observers. And we see this, the crowds marveled. They're amazed. And they say, never was anything like this seen in Israel. This has never happened in Israel. Are they right? Oh, Yeah. There's never been a time in Israel where as many miracles as instantly done, as completely done, has happened, centered in one person. But they're wrong, too. They're right and they're wrong. They're right in the fact that it's nothing like this has been done in Israel, but they're wrong in their response. Because where do they stop? They stop at marveling. Now, they're right to marvel, right? They're, that's amazing. That's, that's incredible. But what does the response that Jesus wants? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Remember, all of the miracles and all of the things that are going on are foretaste. They're appetizers for the kingdom to get you to focus on the king, to follow him, to follow 
him. That's one response. They marveled. Never like it has anything like the scene in Israel. That's true, but they don't go far enough. But then we see another response, verse 34. But the Pharisees said, now remember the Pharisees, they're not like, they don't have an official position in Israel. They're kind of a grassroots movement that they were all about purity and approaching God and they're doing all these rules and things. Uh, they're, they're trying to keep the law so they can draw near to God. In a sense, they're their aims were right, but the problem is that Jesus points out again and again is they've got the externals there. The externals look really good. The internal is dead. The internal is dead. But the Pharisee said this, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And that's opposition. And in fact, as we walk through these episodes, what you see in the narrative is opposition is beginning to grow. It's already been growing. Yeah, you can think back to the beginning of chapter 9 with the healing of the paralytic. Who is this that even forgives sins? There's a growing opposition already to Jesus and what he is doing. And we see that here. Now, this same claim will be brought up again in chapter 12, and there Jesus is going to deal with it. He's going to deal with it. But for here, for right now, Matthew is trying to draw our attention to responses. Who's responding and how are they responding? We see kind of a, a marveling that stops short of faith and discipleship from the crowds, but we see an opposition growing from the Pharisees and their buddies, the scribes. And then Matthew summarizes the whole, really, from chapter 4, verse 17, to chapter 9, verse 35, with this. Jesus' ministry in Galilee looked like this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction or every disease and every disability. So what's his ministry look like? It looks like teaching and preaching. What's he preaching? He's preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is good news. This is what God has designed from Genesis to Revelation, things to look like. A steward king under his rule, overseeing all the earth, mankind living in perfect harmony with God, in abundance and security and beauty on the earth. That's what the kingdom is supposed to look like. That's good news. But only if you repent. Only if you repent, because that's what Jesus, that's what John's message was, that's what Jesus' message was. In summary, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn Near. It's only good news if you repent and entrust yourself to Jesus. And all of the diseases, healing all the diseases and all the afflictions, they're just foretastes of that. They're just teasers of coming attractions. But you only get the full meal if you repent and entrust yourself to Jesus. And so as we close out this major narrative unit in Matthew... Here's the main question. What is your response to Jesus? That question puts, is put to us all, each and every one of us, believer or unbeliever, here today. What is your response to Jesus? Matthew has demonstrated clearly that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. And he's God incarnate. That is who Jesus is. And he demands your faith and discipleship. He's not asking for it. He's demanding it. Because he's the king. He's graciously offering amnesty from the wrath of God through him and through him alone as the one mediator between God and man. But it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you Everything. It'll cost you your whole life because you're signing up and swearing allegiance to Jesus and you're going to follow him and you're going to obey him no matter what. Yes, are you going to falter? Absolutely. But what's the response when you falter? Entrust myself to Jesus again. Get out of the ditch and keep walking and keep following him because he is the treasure. He is worth it. He is the king. What is your response? Is it opposition? Do you feel your heart hardening against hearing about Jesus? Yeah, that's nice, but that's, that's just old stuff. It's 2,000 years. It's a nice myth, but it's not true. Or opposition doesn't have to look like that. It could look like this. Well, yeah, Jesus is a nice teacher. Jesus is a nice guy, but it doesn't have any effect on my life. That's opposition. It sounds nice, but it's opposition. 
Or maybe it's amazement. Maybe it's amazement. But is it amazement? And amazement is proper in, the, in seeing who God is and seeing what he's brought through Jesus. But is it amazement that stops short of faith? That's what the crowds did. They were amazed. They got a nice light show, so to speak. But they didn't swear allegiance. They didn't entrust themselves to Jesus. They didn't repent. Is it amazement that shops short of faith? Or maybe it's like the blind men. Maybe there's some sort of acknowledgement. Yeah, I know who Jesus is. I know he's the son of God. I know he's the one who died for our sins. But is there obedience? Is there obedience? Because the blind men believe they even got healed and then they went away without any obedience. They directly disobeyed a command from God because their discipleship was defective. What Jesus demands is entrusting of yourself to him for rescue and allegiance to him with all of your life. It's desperation. We've seen some of these people, and it, it just looks desperate, doesn't it? I, I need to just touch the edge of his robe. I need to, my daughter just died. Would you come and heal him? That's what faith looks like. It's desperation because you know you have nothing. Nothing you can come near to God with. Absolutely nothing. You're a spiritual zero. We are all spiritual zeros before God's eyes. And the only way we draw near to God is through the one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so if you've not entrusted yourself, you need to do it today. Talk to me, talk to Jim, talk to the person who brought you. I don't care. But if you are not sure that you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, you need to do so. And if you're a believer you need to entrust yourself to him today as well. The same faith today, the same faith that began your walk is the same faith that sustains your walk. And you might say, yeah, I've been disobedient. Well, okay, confess and repent and entrust yourself to Jesus that he has paid for that sin on the cross. He has lived the life that you could never live and he is bringing you to life and trust yourself to him, swear allegiance and start following and start walking. Repent of sin and entrust yourself to Jesus as the rescuer from death, blindness, and demons to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, you are awesome. We praise you and we give you great praise and thanks. Lord, we are sinful people. Lord, we deserve your wrath. We deserve the Father's wrath for all eternity because our sin is a personal offense against you. And yet you in mercy and grace again and again and and through the incarnation, which we've just celebrated yesterday, it's the most miraculous thing that's happened, and it's the most gracious and kind thing that has happened to draw us to true life from death, the death of sin, the death of self-allegiance, the death of self-autonomy to yourself. And we praise you for that. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see your glory, to see your excellencies, and to follow you no matter what. Lord, forgive us, for we stumble each week and we fall. And when we do, help us to confess our sin, to repent, to entrust ourselves to you, and to keep walking. We thank you for your great grace and kindness towards us. Please work in our hearts for your great name's sake. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.